you remember that restaurant that I think it's a very small restaurant and they have chefs from all over coming to cook there for like a few months. Yeah, the Chardon. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the last time I saw you. Yeah. It's a nice place because it's Arles is very small and then they change chefs all the time. So it brings in a new vibe and curiosity and excitement and yeah. Did you ever see my link? Did you ever see the tiles in the collaborative kitchen? In person? No. 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 Yeah, I haven't been, made it back to Arles since pre-pandemic. Your, your project really launched the, the mycelium lab, but we're still in the process of learning to understand like the, the strains that are really from the yeah, south of France, really from mm-hmm. the region. It really takes time, but it's, it's very exciting. And well, that's, uh, be wonderful to come by at some point next year. Wait, this year, we're in 2022. <laughs> Actually, I was there today since a very long time, standing there, like feeling the walls in real, like the, the ramped earth. Earth, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very, um, it's very big and very impressive. And there was also, uh, well, we can continue. For yeah, let's, let's, um, Sophie's like, should I leave you guys alone? <laughs> this is like the new type of detour talk. It's just catching up. It's called the catching up talk. It's also necessary. We need to. Welcome back, dear listeners. This detour talk is part of our Thriving on Mill series an island on the Inner Hebrides in Scotland, where last September, Eric and I explored how to make kin in such a remote place, together with other humans and non-humans. And as detours go, the conversation with Tom Morton, one of our participants, made Eric and I want to speak to the guests you will encounter today. And so our pluriversal network of makers grows and grows and grows. (laughs) And with me today are two great researchers who crossed paths through their joint passion for bioregional design. With us today is architect scientist Meiling Loco, welcome, and social designer researcher Henrietta Val. Welcome to both of you. Eric and I always like to start our talks with asking about the weather. I'm in The Hague, for example, and it's one of those gray, 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 wet, wet, wet days. <laughs> the rain, maybe the listeners can hear it, rain is really hitting the window here. In my uh, in my living room where I'm sitting. So, what about you, Mailing? Where are you calling in from, and what's what's the weather like where you are? Hey, Sophie. Um, I'm calling in from Accra, Ghana, and um, around this time we are typically into the hot season, but um, it looks like the Hamatan, which is this sort of cold, dry wind blowing from the Sahara Desert, has extended till now. So you'll get dry, hot moments, and then all of a sudden the moist heat in between. So you're not really sure quite what to do, but I guess this is part of the climatic changes we're all experiencing. Uh, Well, here it's a very sunny day and uh, the Mistral has just left. So birds are very happy. Uh, Yeah, the Mistral was there the last days, like coming from the north through the Rhone Valley straight to Ale. And uh, yeah, from about end of October to 
uh, end of February, you can you can experience that. So there's a big difference here between summer and winter. Yeah, it, it's like spring, spring. Yeah. And what's your mental weather like? It's Friday afternoon, end of a very busy week for me with some kind of bad news yesterday. So I'm still digesting that. What about you two? I started today with a photo shoot that I prepared yesterday and it was the end of a residency with a shoe designer, Sophia Guggenberger. And so that's always great and very satisfying to do, to see what is actually there and to just focus on beauty. <laughs> to be able to harvest, no? It's like a way to harvest. Yeah, that's how it feels, yeah. I started my morning with, <clears throat> I think I told you, a very long jury call um, for a new design competition on circular design. So I'm very pensive at the moment still um, and feel quite connected to a, a lot of global global people thinking around the same things. So I feel very connected and sleepy having been staring at a screen all morning. Mm, thank you. Uh, let's get into a little bit uh, the heart of the matter of our, our talk here today, because first of all, to link back to how this detour talk came about. So Tom Morton, an architect like you, founder of Arc Architects, uh, you designed together with him what you call an open air classroom for the Future by Design Cove Park residency. And it was uh, put into use and programmed during the COP26 in, in Glasgow last November. I remember Tom telling me that you were both trying to build a space for knowledge exchange and then especially also for the youth, for young people around the impacts of climate change, mainly related to water. Uh, an issue which you identified as uh, being both pressing in, in Ghana and in the UK. And you were actually in Scotland and we were not far from one another <laughs> mailing, but we missed each other by one hair. So I, I was wondering if you wanted to share in a couple of sentences with our listeners what the water issue is in Ghana. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the project was um, supported by the British Council's Future by Design program and you know, Accra and Helensburg, where Cove Park is located, they're both coastal contexts, sort of facing flooding in very different ways. And I should mention that they were two independent projects that came together in the start in the development, but ended up in very different results. But the project in Ghana maybe began with the topography of the city. Accra is a low-lying area, and the water moves here in, in seasonal streams and rivers. So during the rainy season, these pathways of water are very visible, you know, and then during other parts of the year, they completely recede. And so it's, it's very easy to stop paying attention to these patterns, um, particularly as development and population density increase. And the project in Accra was also on public land versus Cove Park, which is a, a very much a private institution. And so there were, a lot of social, political, environmental forces to deal with. But essentially, the, we chose um, a site um, in Ghana's only park, Green Public Park, the A4 Sutherland's Children's Park. That is the only oasis, I would say, of greenery in the city. And over the last few decades has become sort of this reservoir for all of the water moving on the major arteries of the city. 
um, such that the gutters and all of the hardscaping are completely operating beyond their capacity. So these big hotels, these big streets are draining a lot of toxic water, water from swimming pools, water from the streets, all these heavy metals into the park. And the corner of the park is where all of that goes. And so that area sort of blossoms at a certain part of the year, the rainy season, such that no one can walk in that area. Um, and we were given that site mainly because it was a problem. Um, otherwise, I don't think we would have been allowed to do the project there. And so we initially thought that water in the park was moving. This was groundwater moving into that area. We actually discovered that it's actually water coming out of the gutter, almost like a vomiting. And so for us, and this is what we had in common with Scotland, was this idea of mounding and contouring the earth, going deep into the earth such that you could slow down and absorb water much better than the hardscaping practices we, we use today in cities. So for the most part, Accra is sort of a bioswale, a series of mounds and, and valleys where we integrated flood tolerant flora from okra to rice, a lot of sister crops um, to even weeds um, that are very good at holding water. Um, flowers, hibiscus, things that people can actually harvest, um, lemongrass to deal with some of the smells coming out of the gutter. Um, and in, in Scotland, it was very much a mound, which took into account the vernacular typology of turf roofs, where you have grasses and layers of soil that are very good at absorbing um, water. Although the, the turf didn't necessarily materially come into the structure, I believe that's what the Scottish cohort was influenced by in the beginning. Did you notice any differences between the mounding practices, let's say, in Ghana versus the mounding practices in, in Scotland? It's a very interesting. I've never thought of mounding as a verb, actually. So, Yeah, I mean, I would say the scale of mounding is quite different. In Helensburg and the, the wider region, I think Tom had exposed the students and the, the cohort here in Ghana as well to mounding on the scale of buildings. And there is sort of that integration of roof and wall and landscape that allows the flow of, of water to be very effective. Accra does have a ton of earth mounds, especially termite hills. In fact, the city's named after these termite hills. Accra, the word, it means in crown termite hills. But it's, it's sort of rare to see, you know, mounds as green infrastructure in the city today. We visited a number of rice farms in the sort of rice basin of the country, which is in the Volta region to the east. Um, and it was the sort of mounding practices around the rice farms um, that, you know, sort of allowed us to approach the bioswale in the park, you know, that way. And the mound itself is not just earth, but it is also host to a series of other flora. Um, so nothing is ever farmed in isolation, which was also very important for us to see the entire park as, a, as an ecosystem. Yeah, nice. So I can't help making a bridge to the, the wetlands where you are working also, Henrietta, because you're in Camargue land uh, with rice. Also cultivation and wetlands is an interest of yours, uh, Henriette, since many years already. And also uh, I remember from a couple of years ago an exhibition, uh, Rising Water, on the risks yeah. of flooding in the city of Arles, where there is also a lot of hardscaping, right? Uh, trying to keep that river in check, which is a pretty wild river when she decides to, to be wild. Maybe it's nice to, for our listeners, also have a little bit of a comparison with uh, around this like hardscaping versus 
more uh, mounding or vegetal way to deal with with rivers and and floods for the project living with rising water it was um more uh, my aim to to discuss what was ignored and it's a huge in Camargue region a huge problem like when uh there are floods like the entire region is underwater more or less and to also use Luma that at that time was still creative campus but under construction because we opened only last year uh, to to bring different fields of knowledge together like uh, ecologists uh, architects but also yeah to use a cultural place as a platform to yeah to connect which is i think also in the atelier always in in uh, yeah an important task of uh, what we do because maybe i didn't introduce that yet but uh, yeah at luma is not is a design research lab or that is how it's presented but it's of course also a, a network where different uh, fields of expertise come together and um, yeah we also uh, part of that master class living with rising water was also too have um, different architecture schools from different places that deal with flooding around the Mediterranean basin to come together. And because in different places or different cultures, there are different ways to react. I mean, it's way too short <laughs> to, to explain it in, in detail, but yeah, it was, was really, I found that very exciting. Yeah, different, different ways to react and perhaps different ways to also perceive or think about water as a living body or as an, an entity. I think you used the word uh, water arteries, uh, my Ling, and, uh, and, when, and in the title Living with Rising Water, you, it's about cohabiting then, right? It's about living together, so it's also about yeah, negotiating. What was very interesting, for instance, that we, the project brought together this a woman that dealt with flood risk in the whole French Mediterranean arc, uh, together with a woman that experienced already 15, uh, 15 floods or 15 times her house was flooded in her life because she lived on the wrong. And yeah, that was just amazing to, because that, you know, the way she talked about the water and that every flood is different. It can go fast, slow. It's such an abstract thing. And then when you when someone talks from the body from a bodily experience, it becomes really it's there. So, no, as you're saying that, I I fully like relate to that because one of the things we didn't expect was that right on the border of our site um, is a wall. The park is walled, and there are these children on the move who live there. They sleep there, they wash their clothes there, and they know the site better than anyone um, because anytime water moves close to that wall or around that wall, that affects whether their clothes would dry or whether they can set up to cook um, or even play, um, you know, in, in their desired area. And so actually listening to them and their experiences with the water, we got more, a very deep understanding of, you know, the, the, the flood levels, the quality of the water, its pathways throughout the day. It was such a micro scale understanding of, of water that 
I don't think the park administration or anyone, <laughs> you know, governing the use of the park did understand. So, yeah. And so I think it's, an, it's a nice moment at this point in our talk to introduce you properly. Your research integrates a broad range of criteria and actually you question contemporary materials value systems because you aim to develop life cycle designs, you call them life cycle designs, which meet the criteria of generative justice. I made that one bold. What is generative justice, Maylin? It's a theory that was proposed by Ronnie Glash, who is an ethno-mathematician and a cyberneticist. Um, but his, his definition of generative justice is the bottom-up creation translation and circulation of value. And that's very much opposed to the type of value framework that we find in our world today, which is very much a top-down extractive um, you know, mechanism, you know, particularly in capitalist networks. Um, so this gen generative aspect is very much that bottom-up creation. And the justice part has a lot to do with how that value is circulated um, by any hand um, that touches anything of value. And perhaps also how resources are redistributed. I'm thinking, of course, of uh, your recent work, which Henrietta Vau and I had the pleasure to discover at Z33 on one of the last days of December. Uh, your work, Thresholds of Return, an arch built out of uh, different modules, and you will you will tell us uh, about it in a second. It it did something to me walking through it. I I felt something like a rite of passage, perhaps, or yeah, a threshold, I guess, which is also why you gave it that title, right? Could you describe this arch to our listeners? If they have to picture it in their mind, what are they looking at? What do they see? How does it look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the, the most um, important things about the experience of the arch is to stand away from it um, and look at it as a landscape. Um, and the dimensions of the arch are sort of modeled after the door in one of the slave forts here in, on the Ghanaian coast um, in Elmina. Um, but it frames a projection of what it would be like to look back at land. So many slaves always saw the view of the sea and it was very bright against the stone walls of the forts. And that has been a haunting image for anyone, you know, who, who learns about slavery and particularly when you visit the forts and it was sort of an attempt to re-envision what it might be like to be on the other side coming back and primarily the western coast is dominated by a range of coconut trees which I felt was a nice backdrop to the actual material itself and then the second thing I think is the smell there's sort of a range of more finished coconut panels that form the arc versus the more disintegrated um, panels that are on the floor. So it's almost as if the arc is disintegrating from the arch to, to the ground. It's the idea that a lot of the materials in the husk um, have a strong relationship to the earth. And then the smell hits you, uh, the smell of the coconut fibers and the peat. Those are the two materials that come from the husk. Um, and I think it's fairly distinct. And I've tried to describe it, but I don't think a lot of natural fibers smell like the peat and fibers. Mm. Uh, well, maybe that's just me because I'm sick of the smell in <laughs> factories. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then there's sound. And it was important to evoke 
the sounds from the coast to the production, to the transformation and the consumption of, of everything from the tree. And so it's sort of very much a humanist soundscape. So you hear your feet walking on the forest and then you, even the sounds of the fishermen, um, depending on where you are on the coast, they're very different songs that they actually sing that chime in the heavy and the pretty laborious pulling of fishing nets um, to the beach. Um, and all the micro sounds of the coconut hitting the ground and being cut, because it's quite a robust material, the husk to cut apart. It was sort of a, a soundscape of all of those, those moments. Walking through it, then you actually see the, the actual um, scape. And without the arc and framing it, um, at least to me, felt quite liberating and hopeful. But I think that's very much up for um, debate because I have my own personal <laughs> experience with it. But yeah, I think, you know, that's sort of the experience I would hope people could relate to. Yeah. So you mentioned it's indeed built of, a, if I'm not mistaken, 120 of these coconut uh, panels, tiles, you could mm -hmm. say. They have a certain shape. They're, they're, they're curved as well. And they've been pressed, it seems. Can you say something a little bit about the origin? I think they come from a, also kind of a waste channel, right? From the coconut industry. And then something about the production of these panels before they were actually mounted on uh, to this arch. Yeah. Um, so the whole panel is uh, made from coconut husk uh, material. And so if you break up the coconut husk, you'll get those long fibers that we're very familiar with, and then this dust-like substance called peat, um, which is very, both of them are very good at holding water and nutrients and often replace um, soil, um, particularly in greenhouse applications, hydroponic applications. And one of the wonderful things when we were researching this material was we found that the peat could melt at lower temperatures and pressures relative to plywood to form the glue in the material, which cuts down costs and all sort of, of toxicity associated with synthetic adhesives. So that was a wonderful surprise to learn that everything you needed to reform a new material was already in the husk itself. But the whole panel isn't made out of the, the, these two materials because of how heavy it is. And in, in Ghana, throwing away the husk into municipal waste um, collection bins is illegal because of how heavy the husk is. And so weight is always one of the, the bigger barriers to transporting and collecting and transforming it. Um, you can imagine a wall made out of these panels would need a lot of structural integrity. So what you actually have is a substitution of the interior of the panel with mycelium corn. Um, so in section, it's sort of a collaboration of different bio-based materials where you have the coconut on the exterior, very good at dealing with water and abrasion and all of that. And then the softer interior of mycelium and corn, that's great for insulation, both sound and thermal. Mm -hmm. And in the back, it's actually jute, jute bags that are recycled. And those are very good for, for dealing with the interior humidity that one would find you know, in, inside. So sort of three layers in that. Um, so it's quite a tactile object, quite a generic form, but it was our first attempt at trying to understand the, the surface, you know, resolution and the depth of the panels um, and how, how strong they would hold once thermally pressed. So 
that sort of gives rise to its shape and, and materials. Um, you say three layers, and, and right before you also explained to our listeners uh, what this notion of generative justice is and this idea of bottom-up or distributed production. From those three layers, how local or how bioregional are they? Well, how do they mm. come together in the panel? That's one question. And the other question is, uh, you mentioned we were trying you know, to test the, the qualities of this panel. Who is the we you are talking about? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think the product is very much the result of, I would say, transatlantic collaboration network that we had over the, the five years where I was doing my PhD on, on this material. And we were working with outliers to the agricultural industry here in Accra. Um, these are people who collect waste coconut husks from, you know, the, the urban street to the, the market and find other applications for them. And it's a very challenging market, not only from the waste collection standpoint, but then getting people to buy in to um, soil substitutes or high-end, uh, you know, sort of fibers for orchid growing. So the market is quite small, even though there's a recognition that this is something that is dealing with waste in a meaningful way. Um, so that was the African side. And in upstate New York, where I was, there are a number of emerging bioadhesive companies, Ecovative being one that works with mycelium and E2E materials being another that works with soy waste. Obviously, we have a ton of corn as well um, throughout the United States, not just in upstate New York. And so I think we were all looking at what was in front of us um, with our available means and coming out with a product that might actually perform much better given, you know, weight, mechanical, hygric, thermal properties. What was interesting at the end of the project was that these material streams are very much replaceable once you understand the common denominators. So something like coconut has so much structural fibers, lignin, and that can be similar to other plant fibers that have, well, relatively lower, but quite useful um, percentages of lignin. And we understood what transformation pathway was good for, for products like that versus things like corn or hemp that have tons of sugar. They work really well with mycelia organisms that can digest that sugar. And so that transformation pathway um, looks at using that type of bioadhesive. So to me, I think it was a case study and figuring out how to match, you know, how to transform an agro waste into something else. But I don't think they were in any way you know, prescriptive in terms of using these very specific materials. Mm -hmm. This term bioregional design, there's two words in there, bio mm -hmm. and, and regional, and that's for a very important reason. Um, and you as, uh, as artistic research director of, of Atelier Luma, Henriette, for many years, uh, you've also been developing research assignments for designers from all over the world to work in according to this principle. Can you say something about that? Why is it so important when we work bio-based that we also include the regional dimension um, as a design ethic, you could say? Uh, and where, do, where does it sometimes go wrong? Uh, to start from the word, I think I didn't look it up, but uh, I think it comes from uh, biological factors, not from biosource. So it's basically... A bioregion is a 
region um, that is defined by um, geography, by climate, by soil, vegetation, animals, hydrology. Um, and for instance, um, you could say that the Mediterranean basin as a whole is a, a bioregion, but then still like, yeah, when you look at wool in the Camargue region or at wool in Egypt, of course, a lot of knowledge applies, but still because of the heat, the sheep grow completely different wool in Egypt. So it's, yeah, within like smaller regions and that things work in a certain way. And yeah, what is of course difficult in um, trying to design with these and within these ecosystems, yeah, it's, it's a bit opposite the, um, uh, our global market. So we start with researchers in the region and then, you know, slowly like the story like goes somewhere else, but then you, um, yeah, it, it can be interesting to still like work on a product with a certain hemp yarn that works on a for a certain sock manufacturer. And then when you have that product, like challenge the local hemp, hemp farmer to adapt to, to, to yeah to um, come to um, a higher a more high end or a higher valorization of his his product or one of the first things we discussed with with my Ling, I, I think yeah what what I found very interesting in my Ling's work is also how you um she you <laughs> build um networks of, that include both like scientists community um yeah scientific institutes uh startups Working with mycelium is very interesting. It's environmental friendly. It's very light material. It's fire resistant, etc. You can there's in Camargue you have tons of uh, rice straw that are not, that well now less and less, but that uh, in the, at the time that uh, I started with the atelier uh, where yeah were burned, and so that uh, mycelium can really work well um, with such uh, agro waste, but then. To then combine that with also a local strain and of course there is a local strain of mycelium that can do the job but it just you know takes a long time to to get there it's actually great that there's a company like ecofative that yeah that it, that is already much further and that can provide such a material but it's a bit like what you have in the with organic food it can be good food, but it's not per se like grown locally or it doesn't necessarily have a, a low footprint because that is, of course, also very important in designing for the bioregion. There are so many th things that you just said, which um, I think about a lot today. <laughs> you know, the valorization aspect um, is, is so important because I think in the network we had many of these startups uh, particularly in the waste collection and transformation enterprise, they're so vulnerable to the market, domestic market. And so creating value on the ability to send, you know, their products once they've added value to them elsewhere is a huge opportunity. But then when I look now at the, the footprint of, you know, what it would mean to make these biocomposite materials, particularly with mycelium technology, 
I think it breaks down for, for so long, you know, I, I realized that this strain that is found in upstate New York, which has become the, the bread and butter of Ecovative and its licensees, mm-hmm. which are, you know, all over is, is very much a monoculture, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that strain, because it is used to the climate and the, the conditions um, elsewhere, it requires refrigeration and sterilization. All of these are high embodied energy and, you know, operations which don't necessarily champion or use what's locally available. So I think that, you know, the kind of work that it takes to get these strains incredibly resilient to grow materials, building materials or materials that we want to use for a long period of time relative to what's in the forest. I think, you know, you're right. It takes quite a bit of time and collaboration between research, you know, entities like Atalilum or university to help, you know, many of these startup industries. Um, And I think the danger is relying on this one strain that gets licensed throughout the world, which is why it's so exciting for me to hear that the local strains in Arles is now, you know, being looked at at Luma. Yeah. Let me move us uh, into the last part uh, of this talk, the last 10 minutes. I would just like to maybe have from both of you one response, uh, and maybe it can be linked to the collaboration you set up, uh, you had together at Atelier Luma. Maybe it can be more general. What is, what is a moment for you where you felt that you managed to, to bring together technology and culture in a meaningful way? And what does it take, you know, to do that? What's the counter side of that when you, when you do that? Because it's uh, two worlds which are not that easy to bring together. And I, I ask this question, of course, because we're searching for the previous ways for different worlds to, to coexist. Mm. That's a that's a really deep question, and the reason I'm hesitating is because I don't necessarily think I've found that yet um, in in any of my projects, although there are aspirations for it. Um, quite honestly, I think that the coconut panel, despite all that we learned technically and how it was received aesthetically, both in Ghana and abroad, was a success. I I do think that the app application, this sort of value add, where it was sort of an acoustic panel, may have been a failure. Frankly, who needs a coconut panel in Ghana? I mean, it's not necessarily top of the agenda when you're building here. So in that way, I think the coconut, um, there could be an aspect of, you know, tension, you know, between the cultural reception of, of the panel, you know, in the market. I'm always looking back to, in, in the projects that I'm working on now, to these longstanding, you know, indigenous practices of circular design. And I think there's nothing new about it. My father used to wash his hands with moringa leaves and water. And there's a project I'm working on right now that is looking at the waste products of moringa tea production to treat water. And even though the practice, the social practices that would enable that to happen um, are still being co-designed I, I'm looking back at the way this was integrated into one's life, you know, as a domestic ritual. People constantly use leaves, herbs, you know, in their cooking, in their daily rituals when they get sick. And I think there's a, a local knowledge and a, and a way of using this time and time again that isn't so prescriptive. And so I think I aspire to that. And 
particularly if it's a new application in a way, um, I aspire to create that, you know, with the communities that would use it. So many of these things are still in process, but um, it's, it's an aspiration at the moment. I would like to respond also with the project I'm currently working on, which is this, uh, it's called Footprint. It's uh, about the shoe with, uh, which I developed together with uh, uh, the R&D team of Atiyah Luma and Sophia Guggenberger. And it's basically what, what I, it's also very much in process, but it's not a project that is only situated in France, but it was thought it originated in Egypt, where the first like shoes were made and the first sandals were made from uh, plant fiber and hand-woven plant fiber. And there's a beautiful collection that I saw when I was the first time in Egypt in the historical museum. And at the moment, there is innovation in um, uh, the textile um, industry uh, that is really interesting to bring back to rural communities where the craft still is happening. And yeah, I find it really exciting to combine this uh, scientific and uh, textile engineering with yeah remote uh, communities and also female groups. And we're really in the middle of this. So I don't know like where it will end, but so far it's a very exciting journey. And also that uh, sometimes you think that everything already has been figured out. And then sometimes you have these yeah, insights that you really see that new things are possible and yeah so i hope very soon we can we can show you more about that it's a beautiful way to design bottom up from the feet up <laughs> yeah beautiful yeah it's very symbolic yeah but step it's, by uh, step i liked also very much uh Ling, how you uh described from all the senses i can really relate to that there's a moment when the Moringa press meal, which is this waste flour, it looks like flour, when it hits the surface and gets mixed with toxic water, there's a smell, obviously, with toxic water that we're all familiar with if it contains like dyes and all these biological organisms. But the minute the, the Moringa starts to mix, that smell, is, that change in smell is so perceptible. And I, I've realized that you always smell before you see the separation, you know, of all the bad stuff clumping together. And, and for me, I think, you know, engaging all the senses again. When I work now a lot with botanists and farmers, they're so sensitive to color. Colors tell you everything about the health of the soil to the plant, um, the smells, right? Um, you can tell what's suffering in the ecosystem or what's beginning to happen. Um, and I, I think that's the sort of sensibility we need back again as designers um, because <laughs> we're so used to our materials behaving so predictably and looking so predictably and inert um, that that ecological knowledge is just, you know, stagnant. Um, and so that's so exciting to hear about your shoes and what an amazing title, Footprint. <laughs> I think we need to get you to help us figure out names for our project. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you, Henrietta Val, Mailing Loco. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you and to <laughs> Thanks for the last question, Sophie. Yeah. What a nice walkthrough. Yeah, thanks for that. Mm -hmm.
In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of het Nieuwe Instituut in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Traveling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.